When we think of Valley Forge, we think of that classic story of American perseverance. It's like where the roots of the American dream begin. You've got patriots fighting this bitter cold and the mutinous sentiment that's surrounding them, hoping that they'll live to see the spring and continue their battle against the British Empire. The Continental Army itself is basically fighting for survival after the British take Philadelphia. They've been chased out of the city, and they've chosen Valley Forge as winter quarters. You have the stories of the Taskmaster, who could forget George Washington corralling his troops and keeping morale up. And then you've got Baron von Steuben. He's drilling the young colonial troops into what would become a more disciplined, well-oiled machine of an army. But left out of this story is the brave young colonel who's tossed into another thankless leadership role. Right in the midst of Valley Forge is where we're going to meet back up with our hero, Aaron Burr. And yes, he's a hero. Welcome to A History of Losing, a podcast about people that history has deemed losers, but we think deserve a second chance. Season 1, Buried Alive. Episode 2, Finding Love in the New Republic. There was a place in Valley Forge known as the Gulf. It was a small passageway along a river, but it was important to man because this was the easiest way for the British to sneak in and snuff out the army at night. It's the most vulnerable point of the winter quarters. And there's many problems with the Gulf. Number one, it's an outpost that's far from camp, so it's not easy to get to. But secondly, the problem is the men that are guarding the Gulf. They're not your ideal sentinels. I mean, obviously you don't put your best troops to stand watch, but these guys are bad. I mean, they routinely signal false alarms, they fall asleep at their posts, and they're completely undisciplined. And this is the most vulnerable point of Valley Forge. So the man in charge of the defensive outpost sees a solution. He sees a young colonel coming into the camp with a reputation for discipline. He's turned this ragtag militia into a well-oiled machine, the Malcolms. So he puts Colonel Aaron Burr in charge. Now here's an interesting note. The men at the Gulf are known as the Malcontents. How similar. The Malcontents, the Malcolms. But I don't want to rag on the Malcontents too much because they do have a point. Their outpost is far from camp. Their quarters are terrible. They're undersupplied. They're underpaid. And this is the reason they lead to mutiny. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying this is one of the reasons. So there's really only one solution. If you can't get more supplies, if you can't move the outpost closer, Colonel Burr arrives at the conclusion he has to go straight to the heart of the problem, discipline. And at this point, he's a young 21, 22, so he has little to no empathy or sympathy. If you know any 21 or 22-year-olds that have depth of empathy, that person is a rare find. But the malcontent's tendency to shirk duties infuriates him, so he decides to institute a daily regimen. Day and night, he drills the men. Sometimes when they stand guard, Burr will wake up in the middle of the night, he'll sneak out to see if anyone's fallen asleep, and then those that do fall asleep, those that don't follow orders, that aren't properly dressed... He sends to the stocks for lashings. And at this point, to keep on top of them, Burr is maybe sleeping four hours a night. But like any attempt to detox the body, you have those final pangs of the drug, the final pangs of mutiny. So at one point, a conspiracy develops to assassinate Burr. But he has his loyal soldiers who tell him about the plot. He notes the cabin of the men responsible, and on the night the killing is to be carried out, Burr calls his men to a review. Picture the night. They stand at attention in the cold night right near the gulf. They're outside their makeshift cabins. They're dressed for a review in a long line, and Burr looks over their uniforms, their muskets, and their posture. And as he walks down the line, a soldier springs out from behind him and lowers his musket at Burr's chest. Now, the quote the other soldiers heard 
was, Now is the time, my boys. And the man pulls the trigger. But nothing happens. There's no spark, no blast of musket ball tearing through flesh. All too late, the mutinous soldier realizes his mistake. And in one swift motion, Burr draws his saber from his hilt and swings it down in an axe-like motion. He cuts the man above his elbow and hacks through the bone, and the arm hangs half-severed with only the tendons to keep it together. And a scream of agony pours from the would-be assassin. And then, like nothing happened, Burr orders the soldier back into line. So what went wrong? Well, it's simple. Burr knows the plot. Like I said, he has his informants that he keeps close, and he knew that an attempt would be made on his life. He just didn't know when. Until they told him. The young colonel sneaks into the cabin. He removes all the gunpowder from the men's muskets and their musket balls. Now, they assume they're still loaded because they'd packed them the night before, and they assume they're ready for inspection. And that's a critical mistake for one soldier, and now he has one less arm because of it. And that's the end of the mutiny. Now, stories like this should be the building block in a stunning military career. As is the case with Burr, what makes him a great leader also makes him an insubordinate soldier. And in a revolution where fortunes are going to be made in the new country based on that military progress, Burr is never favorable in the eyes of the kingmaker, His Excellency, George Washington. So the true taskmaster of Valley Forge will have one final role in the revolution, and that's at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. But strangely enough, that will seal his fate with George Washington. But how did we get to the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse? For that, we have to back up to 1777 in the fall. Now, in October, the Battle of Saratoga is won by the Continental Army, and in no small part due to one Benedict Arnold turning the tide of the actual battle. And because of this, the French decide to join forces with the Continentals. Now, at this point, the British know they can't hold both Philadelphia and New York. So England decides the best strategy would be to evacuate Philadelphia and concentrate forces in New York. So they set out on a long trek up the coast. It's basically a retreat, and most historians would write that it should have been an easy route. Now, here's how it happened. The Redcoats begin the march north, and then not far from Monmouth, New Jersey, American troops under General Charles Lee meet the enemy marching in narrow lines. There are two sides to what happened next, and depending on which historian you read, you'll hear two different stories. Some argue Lee could have destroyed the British column if he'd acted decisively. He had the element of surprise. He faced a thin line of regulars. But by hesitating, he was lost. And the British troops regrouped and moved on. It was only thanks to General George Washington advancing that saved Lee's troops and the day and turned Monmouth into a victory. That's one thought. The other is that Lee had a considerably smaller force than the British, and he lobbied for small, light attacks on the British evacuation route. What he saw was a force of British regulars with 6,000 more men than he had. He would strike, parry the blow, and allow Washington's men time to get in place. But whatever the case, that was the course of action he took, and Washington was furious. Lee would be court-martialed afterwards and forced into retirement. And he would have some quote later on that would say, If I knew that all I needed to be a great general in America was to be a farmer, I would have quit the army years ago. But on the battlefield that day, Aaron Burr would lose all respect or whatever respect he had left for General George Washington. Until the end of his days, Burr would be known to side with the disgraced General Lee, and it's not hard to see why. So this day, as the march begins, it's a sweltering 100 degrees. There's humidity dripping in the air, and the sweat's pouring down the Continentals' backs as they march to meet the Redcoats. It should have been Burr's, Malcolm's, finest hour. The Malcolms and their leader had marched along a ravine, and the plan was to ambush whatever British came along the road. And by the afternoon, they had their targets. Unsuspecting British troops traveled below them in a swampy, wooded valley. 
Now they were vulnerable, unsuspecting, and an easy kill for an eager colonel and his well-oiled unit. When the Malcolms get into position, they waited for Burr's signal, but the signal never comes. As Burr gets ready to lead the charge, one of Washington's aides rushes over and demands he hold their attack. Now remember, Washington wanted a single final blow to the British infantry, and he wanted one of his favored leaders to strike the blow, but the ceremonious attack has a devastating effect on the Malcolms. Within minutes, their position was exposed. They held tight on the side of the ravine. They couldn't attack. They couldn't retreat. They're just sitting ducks. And then the cannon fire starts. Reports say the first blast exploded in the trees above Burr's men. It was heavy British artillery fire, the most powerful ballistics force in the world. And then came the grape shot. Now, if you're not familiar with grape shot, it is a horrific fate. A cannonball is bad enough. But grape shot is dozens, sometimes hundreds, of small iron balls blasting out of a cannon. And one blast takes out Burr's second in command, and then the Imperial firepower increases on the Malcolm's position. Now Burr pulls on the reins of his horse to regroup his men, and I'm sure he heard what happened next. The loud blast of a cannon, and the roar as the tiny iron balls bore down on him. And then the grape shot ripped his horse out from under him. The horse dies instantly, and the young colonel is fighting dehydration, panic, and now death. Continental reinforcements come in, but the damage is done. The Malcolms suffer dozens of casualties, and Burr only points the finger at one man to blame. Squarely on the boss, General George Washington. Now this is the last true revolutionary battle for Colonel Burr. The heat and exhaustion will leave him with a lifetime of medical maladies. He'll have migraines that cripple him, and sometimes in the middle of winter, he will sweat as his body reverts back to the feelings of Monmouth Courthouse. The glory of the revolution ends that day for Aaron Burr, and he attempts to take sick leave, but he never heals enough to return. It's pretty demoralizing for a young man who dreamed of this battlefield glory to know that the war for him is over. He won't be given any sort of positions after the war because of his service, but I don't know if Burr cared at this point. He was in love. Theodosia Bartow Prevost is the woman. To understand Burr's politics later down the line, you have to understand her. She is his first wife and one of his two true loves. The other will be their daughter. Now, in his biography of Burr, Milton Lomask puts the Burr's relationship in context through letters. And in one letter, it's particularly revealing about his view of his wife. He sees her as his equal. It was the knowledge of your mind, Burr says, which first inspired me with a respect for that of your sex. I confess that the ideas you have often heard me express in favor of female intellectual powers are founded on what I have imagined, more than what I have seen, except in you. And he goes on to ask Theodosia a simple question. Boys and girls are generally educated much in the same way until they're eight or nine years of age, and girls make at least equal progress. Why, then, has it never been thought worth the attempt to discover, by fair experiment, the particular age which male superiority becomes evident? But that's getting ahead of the story. Now, the background of their relationship is sort of this big scandal because she was married to a British officer at the time when they met, Colonel Prevost, and orders sent Prevost to the West Indies during the Revolutionary War, and that left Theodosia and her children in the heart of rebel territory, which is where she first meets Burr. Now, Burr sees her when the army stations his unit near Colonel Prevost's estate, and they become close, quickly, almost to the point of a speculation about an affair and they carry on a correspondence that will grow throughout the war. He'll go to the house, he'll entertain her children, and he'll spend hours talking with the British officer's wife. And even at some point during the war, he has to help her keep her estate when the American forces roll through and try to confiscate it, and he uses some legalese and a little bit of his gravitas, if you will, 
to keep the estate for her, and it becomes this companionship that's unmatched in his life, one he hasn't seen before. But there's still one big problem. She's still married. Now, there are no definite rumors that the relationship was inappropriate. Still, when her husband died, Burr rushed to wed her, and she made him wait. Theodosia was never a woman who needed a man, not even Colonel Aaron Burr. Eventually, Burr and Theodosia get married, and throughout their life, in letters, he would always refer to her as his intellectual equal. They only have one childhood that lives long enough to make a life, and that's their daughter. And Aaron Burr names her after the person he admires the most, his wife. He would only ever really love, if you think about it, Theodosia's. Now, if you remember that letter from earlier, the Colonel and Theodosia do conduct an experiment on their daughter, Theodosia the Younger. And so the answer to his question, when do men become superior, he found was at no age. It's worth noting that throughout the younger Theodosia's life, Burr will always see her as his best friend. And the only constant correspondence he maintains throughout the years is with her. He makes sure she speaks several languages, makes sure she's well-versed in philosophy, and stays up with current events. And eventually she marries prominent South Carolinian and future governor Joseph Alston. And Burr constantly reminds him Theodosia is no houseplant, and he asks his son-in-law to challenge her brain and continue her quest for knowledge. Burr's marriage and his family life will have this significant effect on his political views. And years later, as a member of the New York legislature, he will lobby for women's suffrage, and he'll even go a step further even more radically and propose legislation to give women the right to vote. In his later years, he's going to also raise orphans from another New York family, and at some point, those adopted daughters have to get educated, and he gives them the Theodosia treatment. Education equal to their male counterparts. To put this in context, when you do hear about Burr's poor character in history books, not listed often are some of the reasons that people had turned against him that derided him, and one of those was his view of women. In newspapers, you can find this, you can read this today, Alexander Hamilton, now pop-culturally famous, and others will literally write that Burr's idea that women are as intelligent as men is proof of his poor character. There's one reference where they scoff at his belief that, quote, women have souls. But the road towards early progressive ideas and feminism starts here with Burr's marriage. We don't hear much from Burr politically at this point, and to support his young family, the two Theodosias, he finishes up his legal studies, and eventually he becomes one of the top attorneys in the state. He goes up to Albany to start his practice, and he moves to New York City, and it's said that he is formidable in the courtroom, and he's only rivaled by another man, that you know this by now who it is, Alexander Hamilton. Now, coming up, that rivalry will take a twisted, personal turn as Burr moves into the political arena.